0: We are jumping back into 1 Peter, and um, it's been a little while since we've been here. We took a little break over the Christmas season, and we're diving back in, but I kind of want to warm us back up a little bit before we pull out of the driveway and kind of dive deep into the book of 1 Peter. Um, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking specifically at what, what Peter has to say about marriage, and, um, and that's of vital importance to us um, not only as the people of God, but maybe particularly because of the way our culture seems to view marriage, how marriage has in many ways um, been, I think, resisted in our culture as of late. Certainly it has been in many ways devalued. We even know as we look at marriage from a cultural perspective that the definition of marriage has been changed from God's definition um, of marriage to a very different definition of marriage. And so it's imperative that we look at God's word and we understand what he has to say about marriage, about um, the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives... But I also want to say, just as we dive into this, I'm very aware that, that talking about marriage, even in a church context, can be um, very discouraging for some people. There are some people in here um, who have been married and maybe have been divorced, who are widowed, um, and maybe there's some, some single, young single people in this church, or just single people in general. And so I, I understand, listen, every time we talk about marriage, um, we have to be aware that there are different people represented in the body of Christ and I think if I could just maybe speak, maybe from a, a bit of a, a heart level, from a heart level to some of you people in here who are single and maybe, maybe the topic of marriage when it's addressed from the pulpit is often a little bit discouraging, I want you to know, just from my heart to yours, that my desire for you is that you are not discouraged by what we look at in God's word and how we talk about marriage, but instead, even as a single person, that you're deeply encouraged by what the word of God has to say. I think singles are often overlooked in the church Um, They often feel like, or have been made to feel like, even unwittingly by believers, to feel like a lesser part of the body of Christ because of their singleness. That's incredibly unfortunate because that excludes some very important single people that we see in scriptures, um, like the Apostle Paul and how about Jesus Christ. I just want to say that if you're single, you need to understand that your worth and your value is not dependent upon your marital status. I understand that many of you even long to be married. You desire a spouse, and that's a good thing. In in light of that, when we look at God's word, when it speaks of marriage, this is an important time for you to understand who God is calling you to be as an individual, as well as who God is calling you to look for, the kind of person you want to marry. But more than that, you must learn like all of us must learn, to keep our heart and our eyes fixed upon Jesus as the ultimate source of our joy, our satisfaction, and our identity. Our identity is not determined by our marital status in any way, shape, or form. Our identity is established and founded upon our union with God through Jesus Christ. There are some of you in here who don't want to be married or maybe you do, but you never will be married. Either way, whatever position you find yourself in this morning, these passages teach you much about how to be a follower of Jesus Christ, not just in the context of marriage, although that is specifically what Peter is going to address, but just in how we live and operate as a follower of Jesus Christ in the world around us. Now, to those of you who are married, which I think is the vast majority of of you in this room, let me just speak just to you before we again dive into the text. It's important when we come to a series on marriage, and by the way, like I said, this week we're gonna look at wives, and next week we're gonna look at husbands, but it's so important that you approach the word of God and the topic of marriage the right way for you to extract all the marrow, so to speak, from 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 the bone, to get from God's word what he wants you to get. So, listen, if you're married in here today, let me just, if you're sitting here as a husband and you're rejoicing that this morning your wife is going to get fixed, She's gonna, find finally somebody's gonna fix my wife. You're already starting in the wrong place. Or if if you're a wife in here and you're frustrated, wondering why we didn't start with the men, and you can't wait for next week to arrive already so somebody can fix your husband, you're already, listen, you're already starting in the wrong place. And here's what I wanna encourage you to do. This is gonna help you get the most out of God's word this morning. Whether you're married or not, here's the principle you need to embrace, but especially if you're married. Here's the principle that I promise you will allow you to hear so much from God's word and to be transformed by God's word this morning. Embrace this principle right out the gates. Listen, just say this to yourself. I am my own biggest problem in my marriage. And if you're not married, just simply say this. My sin is my biggest problem. My sin is... Not my spouse is my biggest problem. Or my sin, not other people, is my biggest problem. Okay, if you can approach the word of God like that this morning, I promise you God has something to say to you. And so here's what we're going to do. Let's bow before the Lord and let's just ask God to speak to us about our sin this morning and about the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning. God, we believe your word wants to speak to us about us and so God, we just, we simply say, God, married or not, whatever context we find ourselves in this morning, God, God, speak to me. I I am my own biggest problem. My sin is my biggest problem. And God, I desperately need you not to fix somebody else. I need you to, to keep fixing me. God, keep applying the conviction of your word to my life. Lord, rip the sin out of my life, and God, apply the healing balm and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would do that in our midst this morning. Do that, Lord, uh, for our good, and do it for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. If you agree with that, you can say it with me. Amen. Peter, he, he writes these words beginning in verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 7 of chapter 3. He says this, Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart." Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here, Peter is, again, looking specifically at the the context of marriage, but it's helpful for us to, again, get the broader picture of what Peter has been doing in his letter, Peter's concern for followers of Jesus Christ who live in a world that is often antagonistic towards their faith is that Christians actually look like Jesus Christ, that they actually display through their conduct and their behavior and their beliefs the God that they love, the the Savior that has redeemed them. And this is supposed to be true in every single area of our lives as Christians. But here what we see is that Peter has zeroed in on really three spheres of our lives, three arenas of our lives that in some way very clearly display the gospel If we choose to live according to God's word, he's already looked at, and we've looked at this in the past, at the sphere of of government, how believers respond to the governing authorities over them. And he's he's made it clear that the way we respond, the way we submit, it's the key word he uses here, to the governing authorities can reflect and represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he's kind of looked at slaves and masters, what we can draw a parallel to in our lives is our work relationships, our employee-employer kind of relationships. And he said, listen, the, the way you choose to submit to those who are over you is going to powerfully display the gospel or is going to diminish the gospel to these unbelievers, and here now he draws attention. You can kind of think of it like this. He's almost funneling us down. So he started with a broad bucket category. He's gotten into a little bit more of a personal sphere in the working relationships, a little bit closer relationships there. But now he's kind of, kind of driving towards the tip of the spear. And he's in one sense telling us, this is actually one of the most important areas of your life that you are going to get to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's one of the most important, not because, again, it... it, it It gives you identity or value, so to speak, but because here, in the context of marriage, listen, it is incredibly difficult to hide who you truly are. In all these other spheres of life, you can often get away with hiding who you truly are. But here in the context of marriage, I mean, you are with somebody who sees all of the ugliness, all of the the, the good, the bad, and the ugly all the time. You can't hide anything. So in a sense, I think what Peter is saying is in the context of your marriage, you really get a glimpse of who you truly are. And he's laying down this principle of submission. He's going to address the husbands, and you've already noticed that he spends a lot less time addressing the husbands, and maybe just to refresh your memory as to why he's doing that, he spends more time addressing the people who are being called to submit in these relationships in a unique way, because they are the people who are most often oppressed in those positions. And what he's doing, in effect, listen, he's actually drawing a parallel with these relationships with the people who are oppressed to the church at large. And he's saying, listen, the church in the world is oftentimes going to be the oppressed people. And so these really serve as a picture of how the church is supposed to submit to God. In the most visible spheres of life, We are supposed to look different from the world around us. We are resident aliens, Peter has said, on this earth, whose true citizenship is in heaven. And that should be clear in our marriages. So how do husbands and wives relate to one another in their God-given roles and responsibilities? Well, he addresses wives first, and he calls them to essentially be Christ-like in how they live. So let's look at this first. A Christ-like wife focuses on the Savior, not the sinner. The Christ-like wife learns to keep her eyes, her gaze, fixed upon the Savior, not her husband, who, who is a sinner. Her life, in other words, revolves around her relationship primarily with her Savior, not primarily her relationship with her husband, who is a sinner like her. Here, again, we see the language that Peter uses, that he's used consistently throughout this section. He says, "...likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct." The principle of submission directly relates to the example and the person of Jesus Christ, we can't remove that from this, this picture. If we do, I think we miss the point. Remember back in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25? Peter has given us really the epicenter, uh, which has this gravitational pull towards it. When you think of submission and when you think of these spheres of your life, the model and the motivation for our behavior is found as we look at Jesus Christ. For to this you have been called, he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It is the picture of Jesus that is ultimately in view here. And this is probably the most important theme of this entire letter. You see, the submission that Peter speaks of is not an adherence to a principle, but the embracing of a person. A person who compels us to submit in order to live lives of godly obedience. You can think of it like this. If you want to look like Jesus, you actually have to look at Jesus. And I want you to know, as, as Peter excuse me, speaks to um, wives in this context, he clarifies how they are supposed to submit, who they are supposed to submit to. Wives, be subject, notice this, to your own husbands. You're not just supposed to submit to someone else's husband or to men in general. That's not the call here. He is speaking of this intimate marriage relationship. You should probably note this too. Um, this is a voluntary submission. You say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And here's what I mean by that. Um, men, it's not your job to make your wife submit to you. Sadly, this passage has been used by many men to force submission upon their wives, but God is not pleased with that kind of behavior from the husband, nor is he pleased with that kind of submission from the wife. This is a voluntary submission. This is a willing submission. This is a joyful submission from the heart. Ladies, this is something you must choose to do as an act of worship to God, as a gift of kindness and grace to your husband. But notice that this is something God commands you to do. So while you must choose to do it, you must realize that not doing it is actually a sin before your God. Now, sometimes it's helpful to define terms by um, its negative um, in other words, instead of telling you what submission is, it's sometimes helpful to understand what submission does not imply, especially since this term has been so misunderstood and abused. So let me kind of describe in some ways, this isn't exhaustive, what submission is not. Submission does not imply, just first and foremost, any any moral, intellectual, or spiritual inferiority in any way, shape, or form. This is not a statement about A woman's identity and value before God. Men and women are both created in the image of God, have equal value and standing before God. Both are precious in his sight. Men have no more value than women do before God. But what we see here is that God's design for the flourishing of the family and for society as a whole It contains this idea of submission and headship, leadership. God designs um, structure for the good of relationships and the good of humanity. I mean, just think about this along the same lines. A commanding officer is not necessarily superior in character to the troops that are under him, but his authority is a vital part of the proper functioning of the unit. Submission does not mean that a woman has no voice. It does not mean that you must always agree. It does not mean that you become a doormat in any way. The husband who treats his wife like this is himself in great sin. And this isn't a carte blanche statement in in which a woman has to endure all kinds of mistreatment at the the hands of an ungodly husband and and can never um, find any reprieve from any of that. This this passage, sadly, listen, throughout history has been used to tell women uh, whose husbands have been unfaithful or who are being uh, abused physically, emotionally, verbally, that they must simply sit and endure it all with no biblical recourse. The Bible doesn't allow for that. The Bible doesn't call to that. But it does call for a right kind of submission, a loving submission. And I want you to notice the context here, why this is so important for Peter. You'll notice that he says to subject yourself to your own husbands, listen to the reason here, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. In the context in which Peter is writing, very clearly there are many marriages that are made up of of a believer and an unbeliever. This is still so early in the life of the church. Some of these, these women have been saved by the grace of God, and yet their husbands still remain disobedient to the word. They're rebelling against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have not surrendered themselves. They have not submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so these women are living with unbelieving husbands. But I want you to notice, that's just some of them. It says even if some do not obey the word. In in other words, what Peter is saying is not just for wives who are trying to win their husbands to Christ, he's saying this to all godly women, to all Christian women, He's saying this should be true of you, but if you find yourself in this kind of a position, living with an unbelieving husband, you need to know that God could use this in some seriously powerful ways to grip the heart of your husband and to lead him towards salvation in Jesus Christ. There's a bit of a play on words here that these, these unbelieving husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. They're rebelling against the word, and they can now be won without a word. I just want you to know that what he's calling godly wives to in this context is incredibly difficult. This is not our natural bent. Our natural bent when somebody is opposing everything we believe is not just simply to continue to love them and serve them. It's to try to argue with them, to try to wrestle them towards the truth. This means, you're like, what does this mean a wife is supposed to do in this context? Here's what it means, specifically for those women who are living with an unbelieving husband, which is incredibly hard. And the church needs to have great compassion. In fact, the church needs to be praying desperately for these women and for their husbands. But here's what it means. It means that wives should refrain from constantly, with their speech, trying to call their husbands to believe in Jesus. That's a weird thing to hear, isn't it? Like What? The sense here is that wives aren't to be constantly badgering their husband about their need for conversion. Like repeatedly, over and over, trying to tell them, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. Listen, as noble as that is, and as I know the longing of our hearts is for that, what Peter says here is that that is not actually the way that most of these husbands are going to be one to the Lord. Now, let me hasten to add this. It is implied that these conversations have already happened. It's implied here that these unbelieving husbands have heard the gospel, probably from their wives. So it's not saying that we simply just hope they come across the gospel or hope they figure the gospel out. No, no, the gospel has been shared, but now, after it's been shared and rejected, The onus now is on the godly Christ-like wife to back up and to simply begin to live out the gospel in front of the husband. And Peter says here that it's their behavior, their conduct that will now have the greatest influence on their husband. And here, by the way, we find a principle that transcends marriage and a principle that's widely embraced by the the secular culture and world around us. So, So now I'm not just speaking to the wives in here. Let me just speak to everybody. Let's kind of broaden this application. We know that in this world, this is a common cliche phrase, right? Actions speak louder than words. This is common, right? that the world often embraces this kind of mentality. Or you hear things like this, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. But this is absolutely remarkable what God is saying. Your conduct is a powerful testimony of God's power and presence in your life, and it has the the power to actually influence the eternal life of somebody else. In other words, the way you live out the gospel matters immensely. Now listen, church, if this is true, that a believing wife can influence potentially the salvation of her unbelieving husband? Let me just make a logical argument here. If it's true that God can do this great thing, God can actually use the conduct of a believing wife to change and to transform and to radically save her unbelieving husband, how much more so can the godly conduct of a godly woman influence a godly husband? think about that for a second. Women, listen, women in here who are married to a believer, your conduct can have an immense impact on your godly husband who has already submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is already filled with the spirit of God, who hopefully longs to be made more into the image of Jesus Christ. Your behavior, behavior can radically expedite that process. For some of you, that's an incredibly encouraging thing, and it ought to be. But this is only possible when we learn to focus on the savior and not the sinner. It's ironic in one sense. And this is a statement not meant to say that we never look at the sinner, it's a statement of priority, where we choose to place our focus and attention. You see, when we look mainly at the sinner, we begin to become irritated with their sin. Or we get this Savior complex in our lives where we believe that we are the Savior. God has placed us specifically here so that we can save them through whatever means we view as necessary. But when we look mainly at the Savior, here's what happens. We begin to trust Him. We begin to trust Him for what only He can do. We have to Let go of the Savior complex and give over the saving power to the only one who can do it. And Peter says, this is what this conduct looks like. Look at verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's actually, I don't think that the most accurate translation, I I think a better translation is something like this, as they observe your pure conduct in fear. Let me say that again, as they observe your pure conduct in fear. You see, you can read it like it's written here, and and it seems like the respectful and pure conduct are simply directed towards the, the husband. And while that's a part of this, I want you to see what's really in view here. Your holy conduct is ultimately motivated by your fear of the Lord. It's not your fear of your husband that drives you to respect him and to honor him and to live in a way that hopefully will bring him to, save, to salvation. It's your fear of the Lord. It's your longing to be pleasing in the Lord's sight. It's your longing to live in a way that brings glory to your Savior. You see, you see what's in view here? This is a woman who is focused on her relationship with her Savior, believing that as she fixes her gaze there, that the spillover of that transformed life that she is experiencing will have a massive impact on the person she does love. This is the way all of us need to live our lives. That This isn't unique to, to Christ-like women. This is Christ-like followership of Jesus Christ. We fear the Lord above all else. We live to please Him, and as a result, we, we live out before others the beauty of the gospel. I love what uh, one commentator said. I'll put it up on the screen Tom Schreiner says this, he says, wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict, nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands, and not even because she thinks he is wise. She submits because of her relationship with and trust in God. That's it. You see, this is not only about looking like Jesus, this is about trusting Jesus. Do we believe God's ways are right, and that they are best, even when we don't see the immediate impact, or if we see no impact at all? I think many of us, again, I'm speaking to everybody right now, not just the wise, So everybody, listen, this is a big problem, I think, in Christianity. We have a very pragmatic view of God's word, I think many Christians operate like this without even knowing it. They, they, they convince themselves that they'll obey God's word so long as it works. That's pragmatism. I do it if it works. Therefore, if it's not working out, I'm not going to do it. So you hear people say things like, well, I tried Christianity, I tried prayer, it didn't work. I tried obeying God, it didn't work. Do we abandon truth when it appears it isn't working? We can have such a pragmatic view of God's word. Listen, church, we need to understand something very clearly here from God's word. We don't do something from the word of God because it works. We do it because it's right. There's a big difference there. We don't obey primarily because it works. We obey because it is right, because it is pleasing to the Lord. We may not always see the immediate impacts, but guess what? Here's the awesome thing. We do it because it's right, but in the end, here's what we gotta embrace as well. It does work. Obeying God always works, not always the way we think it should, not always the way we want it to, but God is always working through our obedience. He is always working to grow us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. He is always working to bring glory and honor to his name. God always blesses obedience, even when we can't see it. Wives, this is incredibly helpful for you. Maybe you're living with a a husband who is not leading you well or who is an unbeliever and it's very frustrating, it's very challenging, and what you need to hear more than anything is this, that God sees your obedience to him. God sees your submission, and even though you don't necessarily see it working right now, God is still well-pleased. God is calling you to endure, and you need to believe that God is doing something in you and through you. This is a call to be focused on the Savior maybe if I can maybe speak again personally to some of you in here, perhaps you're realizing that you've been approaching this area of your life and maybe your area, this area of your marriage all wrong. You say, what do I do? I, I haven't been this kind of a wife. I haven't been submitting to my husband. I haven't, I haven't really feared the Lord. I haven't been obeying him in this area of my life. What do I do now? Here's what you do. You run to his grace. You repent of your sin and you ask for help you trust that God is faithful, that God will help you as you call out to him and seek to be pleasing to him. He'll help you, he'll strengthen you, he'll sustain you when it's hard. You recommit to putting God first in your life and first in your, your marriage relationship. Husbands, let me speak to you. If, if, if this, you by the way, wise, I would encourage you, run to your husband too and ask him for forgiveness and ask him for grace. And husbands, if your wife does that, you are called by God to extend grace and forgiveness to her and husbands, let me just speak to you. Some of you, you you have wives who are already embodying this in such beautiful ways. Can I just encourage you? You need to be affirming your wife in this area of her life. If your wife is submitting to your leadership and is making your leadership a joy in your marriage, praise God, okay? You should be thanking God and thanking your wife on a regular basis. You're welcome, wives. Man, this is so important to value what God values. I mean, be pleased with what God is pleased with. Secondly, notice this. The Christ-like wife focuses on the godliness, not the glamorous. It says this in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You can see here Peter contrasting outer beauty and inner beauty of what is of temporary and fleeting value, with what is of eternal value, of what is pleasing to man and what is precious to God. In the Greco-Roman culture, what Peter describes here is how women would dress um, to show off their wealth, to state very clearly their value. And so this is not a prohibition against wives styling their hair or even wearing jewelry for that matter. Some people take this to a really uh, extreme literal degree. You've got to get the heart of what Peter is saying here. He's not saying it's inappropriate for a woman to wear nice clothes, jewelry, or to do her hair. And all the men said, Amen. Which is why, by the way, some tra- translators add the word merely here, don't merely do these things. But this is a way in which in the culture, the women kind of pranced around. They were seductive and they showed their their excessive wealth. It was the way they flaunted themselves. It was a prideful expression of their value and worth. So let's just hasten to, to, to kind of add this idea. The Bible is not opposed to external beauty. Peter isn't Commending this kind of haphazard approach to your physical appearance, right? Like wives and husbands for that matter. Peter is not advocating that in the morning you simply roll out of bed and look at your spouse and say, hey, true beauty's on the inside, baby. <laughs> we take care of ourselves. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, we nourish our bodies, we cherish our bodies, everybody loves themselves in, in the, the right biblical sense of this, we care for, our, we wake up, we brush our teeth, right, we take a shower, I trust, I pray. We do our hair, we do the normal things to make ourselves look presentable. But this is something very different, what Peter is addressing here. What Peter is identifying here is the human tendency to, in their pridefulness, to flaunt themselves, to make much of themselves, to have people um, establish their identity by what they own and how they look. Peter is saying that your greatest concern should not be external beauty, but internal beauty. Right, he's saying, right, don't just get dressed on the outside; get dressed on the inside. Don't worry about being glamorous; worry about godliness. There are so many women, and I mean, let's be honest—in today's day and age, men who are devoted uh, to a superficial adornment, an externalism. Um, a a way of presenting ourselves that says nothing about the inside. This is an admonition against immodest and excessively expensive clothing. If if I can state it like this, listen, the substance of your life is not determined by the spectacle of your appearance, but by the state of your heart. And this is, this is such an important thing for us to address because the same issues that were present in Peter's day are so vividly present in our day. Right? Our consumeristic culture, our cosmetic culture is obsessed with the glamorous. I mean, product after product is offered to increase your attractiveness, your physical beauty. There are endless marketing campaigns to remind you that last, week per, last week's purchases are already out of style. The world wants you to display your worth and display your identity and how you present your external appearance. I was thinking about this yesterday. I mean, I was, I was watching, have you seen the new, the new Apple iPhone commercials? Some of you are like, yeah, I live off of Apple. Okay, the, the, the new Apple iPhone, like you've seen those commercials where, where you, you have, like it's got this new feature, you can do slow-mo selfies right? And so you have these people, like, and it looks like there's, like, these amazing photo shoots, right? Hair being blown back as they take this selfie, and it zooms out, and there's a kid with a blow dryer, like, you know, like, the whole, the whole thing's a facade. And it, the irony in that whole commercial is staggering, they are promoting a superficial, external kind of beauty that they actually relish and enjoy. And they're telling you, this is how you should live your life too. Right? Take as many selfies as you can, trying to paint yourself in the best light so that everybody around you will value you and give you dignity, hear Peter saying, like, listen, this is not the way Christians are supposed to live their lives. We don't live for the next selfie or the next like or the next comment. We live so that our behavior and our character is precious in the sight of God. Who cares what the world says? And yet we're obsessed with what the world thinks. kind of clothes we wear, the cars we drive, the communities we live in, all of this is a value statement we are trying to make all the time, sometimes without even realizing it, but this is so counter to how the Bible calls us to express our identity. Instead, we display our identity through our Christ-like character. Peter calls Christian women to adorn themselves with this imperishable beauty, Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, likewise also that women should adorn, here's the same language, adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Listen, the reality is external beauty fades. I mean that literally and figuratively. Like The truth is is that those who are beautiful when they're young are going to lose that beauty as they age. But figuratively speaking, beauty fades. You, You can't cover up what's really going on inside, not for long. External beauty will not last forever. It can't hide the reality of what's underneath, no matter how many layers of foundation you put upon it. Sometimes, listen, we know this to be true, sometimes the most beautiful people in the world's eyes are the most ugly in God's eyes. But some of the least attractive people in the world's eyes are the most beautiful in God's eyes. He describes this behavior, this character, this imperishable beauty, he says, of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what it is. God's sight is precious, very precious. This word gentle means humble and meek. It's a word that doesn't just characterize women who are godly, it actually characterizes men who are godly. Matthew 5 verse 5 says that the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. you see, women, listen, what God is calling you to is simply to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus in your marriage. This gentle and quiet spirit that is so precious in the sight of God is supposed to remind us, listen, George, Of Jesus Christ, of whom the Bible says there was nothing in his appearance that was lovely, commendable. But we know as we look at the word of God that the beauty of Jesus is seen in his pure and perfect character. The beauty of Jesus is, is seen when he, in one sense, listen, is at his ugliest Physically. When you look to the cross and you see the mangled body of Jesus, and you see the the crown of thorns and the back torn to shreds and, and blood dripping down his entire body, when you see him, he was not something to behold in great beauty, but what was taking place on that cross that day was the most beautiful expression of the character of God humanity could ever know. The love of God. Here he is, the the gentle, listen, the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. Here he is, bleeding out to save sinners like you and me. Let me tell you what what a gentle and quiet spirit is not. He's saying, Is this me? Do I have a gentle and quiet spirit in my relationship with my husband, ladies? Do I have this? Or, or, or sing, does this characterize me as a single person? Is this, is this the temperament, the characteristics that define my life? You see, a gentle and quiet spirit is the opposite of this. Listen, of somebody who is characterized by anger, aggressiveness, being argumentative, and antagonistic. Th- those are not aspects of gentleness and a quiet spirit. Again, this does not mean that you don't have a... By the way, th- those are, it doesn't mean you ever struggle with these things. I'm talking, we're talking about a pattern of life. A gradual growing in God's grace towards these things where these things are no longer the dominant features of your character. But instead, humility and meekness quietness, a gentle trust in the Lord. As Proverbs says, you know, not a quarrelsome wife. It does not mean that you don't, again, have a voice or an opinion. It does not mean that you you can't express those. It means that you choose to express those with thoughtfulness and care. It does not mean, especially if you're living in a Christian marriage, that you never exhort or rebuke or correct your husband. Of course, there are plenty of opportunities. This is describing the way in which you do this, the demeanor, the character that you exude as you communicate truth or live truth out in your context. This is the inner godliness that God uses to attract an ungodly husband to Jesus, and it's the inner godliness that God uses in a godly wife to influence a godly husband towards greater godliness. Men, let me just speak to you for a moment. If this is what God is looking for in a woman, this is what you ought to be looking for and praying for in your wife. If you are single in this room and you are looking to be married, can I just tell you, listen, physical beauty is not unimportant, right? Every one of us would admit that that was probably the first thing that drew us toward our spouse. But I can promise you this, I can promise you this, that godliness, inner beauty is of so much more value, so much more value to your life and to the glory of God You will not regret pursuing above all things a godly, godly, godly woman. Women, this is who you ought to strive to be, Striving for this kind of demeanor and disposition, these kind of characteristics that are just like Jesus Christ, that are so pleasing and precious in the sight of God. If you are a single woman in here and you long to be married, can I just encourage you? You need to strive to put this kind of character on display. And any man who doesn't care about this and only cares about your external beauty, I'm speaking to my daughter here now, he is not worthy of your time. You find a man who values your godliness. And man, if you have this in a woman, you treasure the, listen, there's a day coming, right? We're all gonna look in the mirror. We're all gonna look in the mirror one day, hopefully beside your significant other. And the effects of time and stress and gravity are going to show themselves clearly, right? Men, we're gonna be fat, bald, and we're not gonna have a butt anymore. I won't describe the women. It's much safer to stay with the men. (laughs) Listen, what will matter most in that day is not your physical appearance, but the inner person of the heart. Treasure it now. Fight for it now. It is precious in the sight of God. Focus on the godliness, not the glamorous. Last, the Christ-like wife focuses on the promises, not the problems. Oh, this is so hard, especially in certain contexts. The problems can feel so weighty and so difficult, the confusion, the the hardship can be overwhelming. How do you continue to endure? How do you continue to navigate? The answer from Peter is simply to cling to the promises of God. Peter now provides some examples in verse 5 and 6, one in particular. He says, "'For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening.'" The holy women of old, he's referencing here, are probably the wives of the patriarchs, but I think this is true of all godly women in the scriptures. And what he's identifying here is that what he's asking um, Christian women to do is no different than what God has always expected of godly women. And as we look through the scriptures, we can actually see and identify examples of, of how these these women live this kind of submission and, and godly conduct and character out in, in real life. And the most important comment that this verse makes is that these women, notice this, if you're if you're a note taker or you're highlighting your listen, here's what it is right here. They put their hope in God. You see, they weren't consumed with their circumstances. They weren't worried about all the problems maybe they were facing. They wouldn't let those things consume them. They were anchored in their hope in God. They believed God was who he said he was and he would do what he said he would do. He would be their protector. He would be their provider. He would reward them for their behavior and conduct, even if in an earthly sense, they never received that reward. These women did not submit to their husbands because they believed that their husbands were superior to them intellectually, morally, spiritually, or even in ability. But because they were confident that God would reward all those who put their trust in him. And he identifies a very specific individual here. He says, you want to see a model of a submissive wife? You want to see a model of a woman with a, a gentle and quiet spirit? Look at this woman. I love that he chooses Sarah. For a lot of reasons. But I think it's so good that he chooses Sarah because Sarah was not this wallflower of a woman. She wasn't some weak woman with a lack of ability. She wasn't frail and timid. She was a real, genuine, strong woman. And she is portrayed in the scriptures as a woman of faith whose life was precious and beautiful. She was also, by the way, uh, physically beautiful. She's identified as being physically beautiful a number of times. But look how she lived out the principle of submission. Here's what it says, by calling her husband Abraham, Lord. Now, we don't walk around calling each other Lord. That's that's not a part of our our, uh, modern day language and way of communicating with one another unless we've been watching a whole lot of Downton Abbey. But this word in its context reflects, listen, her willingness to submit. It was a statement about her, her respect for her husband and her willingness to come under his leadership and to support him and strengthen him to work together for God's glory. The context of this quote is incredibly Helpful. I'm going to put it on the screen, and I want to read it to you, that there's only one place in the scriptures where Abraham or Sarah excuse me, calls Abraham Lord, and that's in Genesis chapter 18, and it's fascinating, because here's what Peter wants us to do. He wants us to go back and look at this. He wants us to understand why he chooses Sarah and why he pulls from this picture. Here's what it says. It says, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? This is the angels who have come to talk to Abraham, by the way, um, and he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. See, say, I don't, I don't understand. Why, why, why is he referencing this? I mean, Sarah doesn't look great in this picture, right? She's laughing at the promise of God. Well, here's what I think is happening here. I think this reflects the consistent pattern of Sarah's life. Even in the most precarious and confusing times of her life, and there were plenty of them, she honored and respected, she followed and obeyed her husband. Her hope was actually in God's promise. Even though she didn't understand how God was going to accomplish his purposes, even though it was confusing and challenging to think about what God was saying, I mean, she had plenty of problems that she could be focused on, but instead, she focuses on the promise of God. Now, she wasn't perfect in this, and in fact, if you look at her life from Genesis 12 through 20, you see this, but what you see is a consistent pattern in her life emerging. She always followed her husband. She always listened and obeyed. She always sought to be pleasing to the Lord, but you want to know what's so amazing about this story? Here's why I think it's so fascinating. Did you notice who Sarah was talking to when she said these words? herself. Why don't you just think about that for a second? She is speaking to herself probably in her mind. And in her mind, she still refers to Abraham as Lord. (laughs) Like she doesn't think anybody's around. She doesn't think anybody can hear. And yet she still has this disposition of submission to her husband. I mean, this is incredible. It's fascinating, but God is there and God knows and God calls it out and God puts it front and center. And as much as we're intended to see that in one sense she wrestled with the promise of God, she laughed at how this was going to be possible. What we see here is her disposition of her heart, her submission to her husband. So let me just make this applicable. How do you speak of your husband to others? How about this question, how do you speak to yourself about your husband when you think nobody else is listening? Is your life through all the ups and downs characterized by respectful, loving, God-honoring submission to your husband? Wives, let me ask you this, if someone was to look at your submission, would they see a beautiful and powerful picture of the gospel? And ultimately, your submission to Jesus Christ. Would that be the pattern of your life? Yeah, ups and downs. Yes, struggles here and there, of course. But that's really what this final statement is all about. Peter draws our attention to a marriage that is pleasing to God. And at the end, he says, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Here, what he's talking about is, is not fearing your husband. You don't obey because you, you fear your husband. You're not fearing the results of any of this. Instead, there's a sense here in which you're choosing to fear the Lord. You see, Sarah had plenty of reasons to fear. And when she was submitting to Abraham, submission isn't easy. I mean, how many times? Did, it wasn't easy being married to Abraham, Right? Like every time they go somewhere new, he's trying to tell her, just tell them you're my sister. I've done some dumb stuff. I'm telling you, Abraham, he did some really dumb stuff. I mean, tell me she couldn't have held that over his head for like ever. But just listen, women, I understand this. It's not easy to submit. Your husband's going to make mistakes. He is, after all, a sinner just like you. Everyone who submits is giving up control, and that's scary. But God actually says that it's the mark of someone who ultimately trusts and fears Him above all. And God rewards those who hope in Him, who are focused on the promises of God, not the problems of life. And so He calls women and wives in particular to be daughters of Sarah, to be like her. Knowing that the way you live can have a massive impact on others. In 397 AD, um, in his famous biography, um, St. Augustine, he he wrote in in his autobiography, it's called Confessions, and he gave his mother, Monica, this moving tribute on the influence she had in bringing her unbelieving husband, um, Patricius, to personal faith in Jesus. Augustine described his mother's role with these words, She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. You see, this is proclamation by submission. Submitting is something we all do. It's a way of life. And while our submission sometimes happens in different ways and in different spheres of life, it is ultimately a reflection of our total submission to God. And no one demonstrated this better than Jesus Christ, who submitted completely to the will of the Father, even unto death. But that, that's it right there. The heart of submission is about dying to self. We're aiming to be Christ-like, and in so doing, listen, may we win others to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in our lives, we would live to be like Jesus. Father, I thank you for the marriages represented in this room. I thank you for the women represented in this room. And God, what your word says here so clearly values women so highly, gives them such a great responsibility and opportunity. We're reminded, Lord, that Every one of us has the potential to influence other people for Jesus Christ. Uh, The world is watching. People are looking in, and they're looking to see what it means to follow Jesus Christ. God, I pray for the marriages in here that you would protect them and preserve them. I pray, Father, that you would be changing some of them right now, Lord, that more and more they would look like the gospel of Jesus Christ on full display. Father, we love you. May all of our lives be lived in submission to you. May you be pleased to use us to display the beauty of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.